Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelicone. And tonight we are going to be continuing on in our journey in the top horror B movies of the '80s. This year we are covering in episode forty-five is the year nineteen eighty-seven. Frank, uh, how was this list? Was this a tough year or not? Um, yeah, there was some stuff that was difficult to leave off. I think also some questions about. Whether or not things counted as B-movies, really. Like what exactly um, do you remember? The big one specifically was Lost Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the Lost Boys was... Had enough star power behind it and was enough of a commercial success that it's kind of hard to consider it like a B-movie. I mean, it's a major studio production. New Line, I think, is what Lost Boys is. Is, that, um, is, is New Line like the Unicorn or White Horse? Uh, that's TriStar. Okay, TriStar. Um... What was New Line's thing? New Line is the blue clapboard, I think, hmm. with New Line across it. Right. I I'm pretty that. sure yeah, that's yeah. New Line. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think. There was other stuff. It's been a long time since we we made this list, like probably a couple months right. since I came up with this list. So I don't really remember some of the other stuff. But, I mean, I think that all five movies are pretty strong movies. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because when you look at, like, the horror that was released... Um, two of the movies on this list are sequels, and I think you see a lot higher production value in horror movies at this mm. point in the 80s, um, and some more, I think directors are try being forced to find more clever ways to create horror. It's not just, like, cheapy, low-budget, like, slasher movies, which is pretty much what dominated the first part of the decade um, or zombie movies or whatever. I mean, there's some more cleverness, I guess, to these movies. And even in the ones that are sequels, you know, there's, they're interesting reimaginings or, you know, evolutions of whatever the series that they're in, as opposed to stuff like the Halloween series, which is and Friday the 13th, actually probably the biggest offender where there's no real, um, narrative necessarily with the exception of like four and five i guess have kind of a narrative to them but more or less like those movies are just about the creative ways in which jason can kill a bunch of teenagers and i feel like you know you're seeing like a greater dedication to trying to film like a storyline that matters and builds off of what came before um we'll talk about that more especially with the number five movie but Mm -hmm. Um, but it was it was a fun list to watch. Like I enjoyed watching these movies again. Um, I like all of these movies a lot. So, yeah, this might be the first one where all five I like. I can't remember. There might have been another list where I felt similar. Maybe eighty five or. 86. I thought you felt that way about eighty six. Was it eighty six? I think so. Yeah. If Lost Boys would have been on this list, would it have been number one probably. Nah. No. I still think the number one and number two movie are better than Lost Boys. Hmm. Lost Boys is a weird movie because it's very much a movie of your childhood and like the things that are really cool in Lost Boys when you're young are just kind of corny in Lost Boys when you're older. Um, Like the Frog Brothers and um, just the vampire gang in general. Like it's just kind of silly. It's still a fun movie to watch. Like I like Lost Boys a lot and... One of the better soundtracks of any horror movie. And that's another thing, too, is, like, that's, you know, 
any movie that's got like a fully realized and produced soundtrack with popular artists on it. Right. Um, yeah, it's hard to classify. More or less, like. you know, and really so next year you've got um, Dream Master, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, which is another movie I really enjoy. But I think that Nightmare series have moved beyond like being B-movies at that point because they are like major you know, theatrical successes. Like, they sure. they make a lot of money. And they became, like... I mean, the late 80s is when you have Freddy Krueger action figures and lunchboxes and... You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, he's less of a... It's less of, like, a horror franchise and more of just, like, a marketing cash cow. Right. Um, but, yeah, like, I it was, it was a really enjoyable list to watch. Um, it's getting into... This year and the next two years have some really fantastic, legitimately good like films on them that so, aren't just good because they're horror movies. Like they stand on their own. I think. <clears throat> so you talked a little bit about one of the things I want to bring up is every two to three years when we've been doing this, I've been just trying to check in in terms of what's changing in horror and you kind of touch on that from a production standpoint a little bit yeah. like the about the stories having to be you know move between genres be more creative um and a little bit on the production there right Do you see any like in terms of like the types of stories that are being told? so like thematically speaking it, you need to be more than just like you watch something and it's a classic movie you watch something like psycho and they use really ham-fisted psychoanalysis to explain why Norman Bates is crazy. And that's a lot of, like, in the early 80s. Like, oh, he was abused by his mom. That's why he's, like, murdering all these people. And just in terms of, like, the script writing, and there's a lot of talent, like, in this list. Like, there's Mm -hmm. people that are legitimately, you know, talented directors and writers coming together to create the movies on these lists. And that continues throughout the 80s where it's almost like the renaissance we're having right now where you've got people um like the guy that directed hereditary and uh, midsummer and the guy that directed the witch and the babadook and it follows like you have people that are genuinely talented filmmakers that are just drawn to the appeal of like just making a horror movie and that's kind of what's happening here i think so it's it's more than just like a like almost like because again like the Friday the 13th series and there's a lot of horror movies in the early to mid 80s and even into this time that kind of follow that mold where it's basically a series of vignettes of people getting murdered and it's mm-hmm. just how creative can we be in murdering people and you know like you see that again later in like the 2000s <laughs> with stuff like Final Destination right you know and those Scream, movies are you know. yeah those movies are fine and they're fun to watch but there's not a whole lot of substance there it's more or less just like saw like that whole series sure like, what inventive ways can we find to kill somebody that'll make people squeamish or, like, jump out of their seats or whatever? And mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more actual thought being put into, number one, like, re-examining new ways to approach different tropes, like vampires, demons, ghosts, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Like, it's more interesting. Um, I think directors are a lot more cognizant of like technology and like the changing environment of you know just like the world in like the mid 80s and using that to kind of 
<clears throat> I don't know, kind of influence like their writing and their storytelling. Um, and also just trying to present things in a different way. Like, you know, you can show a vampire story as much as you want, but like, you know, we'll, and we'll talk about a vampire story later in this, in the podcast, but the lost boys, like you're taking them out of, you know, the dank, creepy castles of like Eastern Europe and placing them in the sunny beachfront of California, you know, like it's a completely incongruous setting with the vampire myth, but it does it in a way that's like interesting and new and like kind of cool. And I think there's a lot of that. And really like horror falls off the face of the earth after like the early nineties until scream in 96 or whenever scream is, um, not really falls off the face of the earth, but like really becomes kind of, 100% 100% like direct to video or like right like real B movie right like, like you would see stuff. it on Cinemax right you know sure. and not that there aren't good movies that come out of that mm-hmm. time but it's definitely not a thing that's moving people to the the theater right. you know I mean that becomes more more like big budget action I guess in the early 90s is what is like moving the box office but in a lot of ways like until the mid 90s you have this really dark period of almost like the death of the movie theater where because of the prevalence of like the inexpensive nature and the prevalence of home video, like people are less likely to go and spend the money to go and sit in a movie theater. But then it's, you know, like you kind of revamp the idea of the blockbuster in the nineties. And that's what leads to the explosion of like the multiplex and the movie going experience is like a, you're not just going to the movies, you know, you're going to the movies and you're, it's, it's an event basically. And, and I think that horror kind of got left out because, you know, I mean, like, I I think I looked this up the other day, like Lost Boys, I think grossed like $32 million Mm -hmm. and was considered like a pretty strong success. Sure. And you're a few years away from like, you know what it is? It's Terminator 2. Terminator 2 is the tipping point there. Yeah. where all of a sudden if you're not grossing a hundred million dollars you're not a successful movie right and so people were less willing to take chances on a small horror movie that might only gross like 20 or 30 million that they'd release in theaters and not everybody got away from it but it's far less prevalent in like the mid, early to mid 90s um whereas like in this time period because horror like 30 to 40 million dollars is a fantastic you know, return on investment. Yeah. And so something like Lost Boys is considered a success and buoys mm-hmm. people to like make and take chances on it. Um, right. And you see that, I think, every like decade or so. And it's actually kind of happening right now. And it's pretty much Disney's fault that it's happening now where a lot of studios are less likely to take risks on things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you kind of have that mid 90s pulp fiction that then everybody wants to make like the indie blockbuster. And that sort of fades away with stuff like, I don't know, like Rush Hour and Lord of the Rings and everything has yeah. to be big and epic. Mm-hmm. And then in the, like, 2003, 2004, you see that come back again, like the indie, like the mm-hmm. small indie movie that could, My True. Big Fat Greek Wedding, like that kind right. of, like that, like pushes people to make those again. And now you've gotten since like 2009, where you have the Disney model, where it's mm-hmm. like not even 100 million anymore, like you better it's make 500 million. Right. And at least 300 million to right. be considered like a middling success. Sure. And then you better have another 500 million overseas. Right. So I think honestly, we're coming into a time frame where it's going to be a billion dollars is going to be like the, like the mark of success for a, a franchise that you have to, if, if you know, 
in order for a movie to be considered successful, like it's got to run in theaters for 10 weeks, 12 weeks and gross, you know, domestically and internationally over a billion dollars during that time. And that's really scary because it's kind of, on one hand, it's scary from like the aspect of someone like myself who loves the experience of seeing a movie in a theater. You know, I saw yesterday, I watched um, Ready or Not, which is a new horror movie that came out and it was fun and it was entertaining and just a fantastic experience and it'll probably make $20 million maybe $30 million at the, like on the outside and will not be considered a success at all. Mm -hmm. But it's like, I want the ability to see things like that in the theater and not just something, you know, like I love coming across stuff on Amazon prime and shutter and Netflix Mm -hmm. and things I'd never seen before. And like being able to experience them there, but there's something about, you know, that experience of like the darkness around your head and just like that big bright screen and just like watching the stuff happen on there. And, you know, I mean, this is really off topic. Yeah, but you're worried me, about the lack of risk taking of putting those in the theaters. Yeah, like watching like The Witch and Hereditary and Midsummer and Annihilation and like this Ready or Not, like these small horror movies in a theater with other people in like this perfect environment. There's just something about it with no distraction. You know, your cell phone isn't there. Mm -hmm. I don't have a book. I don't have like a video game in my hand. Like there's nothing else. It's just that one thing. And I think it really heightens your appreciation of a film to have like just that singular focus. Oh, absolutely. It does. Being in the theater to see it. And I don't want to have that reserved for just, you know, the next Marvel tentpole or the next, you know, like... Like, I'm super excited to see Dune next year when it comes out. And, like, I hope that it makes enough money where they're willing to invest in um, other movies like that. I believe they've already invested in a (coughs) three-picture deal for that, luckily. Yeah, but then when that happens, like, there was something in the past, like, five or six years that was supposed to be a temple franchise, and the first movie did so poorly that they just kind of nixed everything else. But... I don't know, like, I just, I'm really afraid, and especially because, like, the movie theater industry is always kind of teetering on that brink of, like, profitability and just being completely irrelevant, Mm. and I just think it would be a shame if you have happened what's happened so many times where smaller movies are just pushed to the side because everyone wants to have that thing that makes, you know. I I, I think there's still some hope. I think something like Once Upon a Time breaking 100. 200 this week. 200 this week, Mm. yeah. I I think that there's still signs of hope that there's a place for those movies. So here's the so. thing with it, though. Like, and I agree, and I was really happy to see that it made as much as it did. But like, that's got the name of one of the most influential directors of the past right. three decades behind it. Sure. And like, yeah, you know, well, word of mouth is dead now. I mean, that's that's the the biggest problem with some of these smaller movies that do get released in the theater. Right. Is we live in a world now where. It's like, how long does this Popeye's things last? Oh, the Popeye's chicken thing? Yeah. Like, how long does that thing... Like, it, it's like... It, and it's massive because it's lasted for four or five days already. Right. Since, like, last Wednesday. Right. Thursday. So, but it's going to be dead by Friday, and we're going to be moving on to some other thing. Right. And so, we, we live in this world where it's like, it can't be sustained for very long. 
where it's like you have a word of mouth thing. If it doesn't happen like immediately, like people are just going to the next weekend is on to something else and they're not going to go see that movie that they heard about that's so good. But it's less word of mouth and it's more societal pressure to be able to say that you've seen it. Yeah. I mean, the reason right. that the Popeye's thing is so well, monumental well, is because... Bird Box is right. probably a good example. Like you, But look at how quickly that also happened. That's like a week and a half. Right. Where like everybody has like heard about it, so it's like they had to go watch it. And then what did you hear two weeks later? Nobody was talking about it. Well, because it's not very good. Well, despite that, just the idea that it's like nobody, like if, if they, they had to get in that very brief right window you have well that that was the other thing i was going to say that like you look at something pre-90s or pre like mid-90s pre-independence day we'll say like you had movies like et that were one of the like some of the largest grossing movies and et ran i think for something ridiculous like 70 weeks or something like that et was in theaters Mm -hmm. which is insane to think that a movie and aside from titanic you know, if you get eight weeks of a movie, right. that's a really long time. Sure. You know, I think Miss Marvel and I, or Captain Marvel and um, Black Panther both have pretty lengthy runs. And of course, like the Avengers movies had lengthy runs. Mm-hmm. But look at something that had all this investment in it, like like Dark Phoenix and was in theaters for like three, four weeks and was a flop and sure. arguably probably an awful movie like I haven't seen mm-hmm. it. But then that scares studios away from... Because that's... You know, they have that new Mutants movie that they're supposed mm-hmm. to put out. <clears throat> that actually sounds, like, interesting because it's a horror superhero movie. Like, it's about, like, the horror elements of mm-hmm. mutation and whatnot. And, like, Disney might not even release it in theaters mm-hmm. now. And not that I have any faith that that movie's going to be any mm-hmm. good, but that's still an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. And when things bomb like that and when that lack of word of mouth and lack mm-hmm. of staying power because no one has any kind of attention span like i don't know it just it it scares me now so bringing this back to horror and like where where this goes maybe for the future of horror and i do have a way to also bring this back to the what we're talking Mm -hmm. about here is do do you think because of that lack of word do you think that horror movies in some ways have to be a word of mouth thing i think it helps i I think that like I think one of the things that makes horror so unique as a genre is because it really is kind of rooted in that, like the basic premise of like folklore and the urban legend where it is about, you know, like the telephone game style of somebody being like, oh, like it was so scary or, you know, whatever, just getting somebody else hyped just on the idea of like being like creeped out or scared by something. Um, and horror is a lot more difficult to portray in a three-minute trailer, I think. Like, to really effectively... Sure. Sometimes you can. But sometimes you don't... Like, I didn't have... I had no idea what Hereditary was about before mm-hmm. I saw it. I was actually really surprised. And actually, I think I got Hereditary in another movie that I saw trailers for at the same time confused. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it's a lot more... Like, I mean, you and you, you said it. Like, it's a lot more difficult... To get someone like hyped up to go see a movie just by talking about it anymore because there's so many other noises coming at them. Right. And and horror is also very niche. Like, I mean, I mean, look just behind the curtain a little bit like uh, our viewer or listenership numbers like for things related to horror is half of what it is for a lot of the other podcasts yeah. because not everybody's in the horror. It's right. like, you know, I can just look around the people I know and it's like 
yeah, roughly half of them aren't into horror movies and won't watch horror movies. Or don't particularly feel like there's any merit. Like, sure. Right. Even if they'll watch them, they don't necessarily care. I mean, right. I know a lot of people that have no interest in horror. Like, mm-hmm. you talked about it. Like, oh, I, don't, I, I can't watch horror movies. It's too scary for me. Or I don't like to watch... Because I think most people equate horror movies with stuff like Friday the 13th. And they think it's going to be slasher movies and blood and gore and gratuitous nudity. And that's not... Right. Like, good horror anymore isn't like that. I mean, sure. it's all very much and more I would say that it never... I would argue that it never was. Well, good horror, sure. Right, yeah. But popular and... Um, good horror. Profitable horror was right. definitely about... Sure. Like what I just said. You right, know, right, absolutely. Yeah. Stabbing some naked bosom. Right. So, in the context of all of that, which is a lot, what is the climate in around this time that you know of about like the feeling of horror movies and like how how were these things i guess what i'm asking is like what was the kind of like the box office effect like for like the the movies we're going to talk about let's say like were, were those kind of things word of mouth then were they well you still had you still had the the one and two cineplexes like all over the place you know, there wasn't, so 87, I don't really think you get the first multiplexes until like 92, 93, 91 maybe is when you start seeing like the 10 to 13s. Right. We get, we get ours in 91. Right. Around here. Two of them because we get, um, People's Plaza was a 10. Right. And Stanton was a right. 11, I think. Yeah. Um, and also Concord Mall was like a six or something like that. Um, and they're all early nineties, like development. Um, in the late eighties, you still had like towns would have like a movie theater that was a two screen movie theater Mm -hmm. and that would show whatever the current big movie was on one screen and would then show like the smaller, you know, like niche genre movies on the other screen. And there was a lot of directors, um, who, who, like who was around this time? You know, De Palma, Coppola, um, Jonathan Demme, um, a lot of people who were being considered, you know, like, directors of note had made their start in horror. So, there was a lot of people that were coming up that were actually talented filmmakers um, who were able to kind of, I guess, lend more of a sense of, like, importance to horror. Uh, Catherine Bigelow, who we'll talk about tonight, right, right. like these are people who were, you know, really good filmmakers and it's enough where I think, you know, like someone would risk like a one or two week run on a horror movie. I mean, I don't, I don't know for sure. Cause I wasn't in exhibition at that point. Like, sure. If we're talking about early to mid nineties, I can tell you like so much about yeah the theory behind that stuff, but so, but a, a lot of these things are probably still being discovered on video though. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're not making a lot of your box office back and right. you're not making a lot of your investment back in box office. Yeah. You're sending things to video. But then that's also what kind of forces the direct to video run mm-hmm. of like the late 80s, early 90s. And like really even to this day that like go look on Amazon Prime at, you know, the horror section mm-hmm. and 90 percent of it is stuff that never saw a release in theaters. Yeah. And it's all like cheapo, you know hackneyed shit well not all of it but a lot as, of it as i'm sitting here thinking about it like about my own perceptions of things horror 
is equated with the with the small screen for me, with television, right? As opposed to movie theaters, I haven't seen that many horror movies in a theater. When it comes down to it, yeah, I I try to see as much as I can that comes out that I feel like wouldn't just annoy the shit yeah. out of me. But like the first one I'm going to see in like a long time is going to be um. <clears throat> Uh, the lighthouse. You're not gonna come see it, chapter two with us. Oh, when's that? Two weeks. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I guess I will. Yeah. Right. Those are movies that I feel like. I mean, the lighthouse is. I don't know that. That's so. I don't know. I I I have a lot of anticipation for that movie. I don't really have that much anticipation for it, chapter two. Like, I don't think it looks that great in the trailer, but that's a movie that I feel like merits being seen in a theater like it's just what it yeah there's just something about it where it's Mm. i don't know well it feels big budget it does i mean it is well right yeah so okay let's go ahead and get um started on this list here so number five on your list is a nightmare on elm street three dream warriors directed by chuck russell starring robert england patricia arquette Lawrence fishburne i think he's gone by larry still at this point larry fishburne and heather lankenkamp uh, it has a 74% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 68% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the plot of this sequel and what you like about it so much? Yeah, I'm surprised that it's lower for audiences. Um, so this takes place, feeds off the events of the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie more than the second. Um, uh, Nancy is, Patricia Arquette plays a girl, like a teenager, who has this psychic ability to kind of like pull other people into dreams. Um, she runs afoul of Freddy Krueger in a dream and he slashes her wrist, which makes her mother think that she's suicidal and she puts her in a mental institution. Um, Nancy, the protagonist from the first Nightmare on Elm Street, is a, I guess like recent graduate, like psychiatrist. Yeah. Um who kind of connects with the Patricia Arquette character because she recognizes that Patricia Arquette's like run afoul of Freddy. Um, there's five other, four other kids that are there with her. Um, all of which are the children of people who participated in Freddy's murder. Um, so Nancy, like recognizing that all these kids are, you know, that he's going to try and kill them, trains them on how to fight Freddy basically. And, he kills a couple of them. Um, they have a climactic showdown. Uh, you know, they, they defeat him. It's, it's one of the better sequels to like a horror franchise. Cause again, it's a continuing narrative mm-hmm. building on a mythology. And it's also the last Friday or nightmare on Elm street movie that really, 100% takes Freddy seriously like where and there's still like the quippy shit you know in the movie that like becomes real the trademark of the movie like after this but he still is more like a menacing shadowy figure um you're still rooting for the protagonist as opposed to rooting for him um and the tipping point of that is probably four or five I guess yeah um where he becomes he becomes the franchise and it's about like making him the, he almost becomes like an anti-hero in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And like, you're kind of rooting for him, but in this movie, you're definitely rooting still for like the kids to win. Um, it's funny because 
story-wise, this and four, which are like basically like part one and part two of the same story, um, it should end the Nightmare on Elm Street thing because the idea of Freddy is that he's a spirit of vengeance that's brought back to revenge his own death. Mm-hmm. Um against the children of the people who murdered him. So at this point, when you've wiped out most of those parents are all dead and their most of their children are dead, what do you really have left to come back for? So it's kind of silly, like, especially after four to like continue the franchise and that's why four and five are kind of the weakest in the series. Um I love the I think the deaths, like the, um, whatever you call it, like the set pieces of the deaths are really inventive. Um, some of my favorite in the series, like I like the, the, the kid that plays D and D that's the wizard and, mm-hmm. you know, um, like he can't walk normally cause he's in a wheelchair, but then he can walk and he can like fight Freddy and, you know, Lawrence Fishburne being this guy who, like, can't control his anger, but then, like, it's super strength in the dream world. and No, that's not Lawrence Fishburne. He's the orderly Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. The kid that plays the... Yeah. Right, that would be ridiculous for Lawrence Fishburne because right. he was, like, a teenager in the 1970s. Right. Um. Yeah, that kid, like, being able to, like, fight Freddy. And mm. I like the idea of, like, Patricia Arquette being, like kind of psychic and being able to fight back against them through like controlling your dreams and the only things that are really bad about it and the the nods to stuff like Ray Harryhausen with like the um stop motion animation skeleton fight scene in the the junkyard which is really cool the idea that like furthering that mythology that through like purifying like his bones and burying them you can like basically lay him to rest and like you know get rid of his spirit or at least let him be like killed Right. And a cool um, little twist that the person who tells him how to do that is actually the ghost of his mother that right, yeah. is trying to put a stop to him. Who yeah, was. I think I don't know if I don't know if part three is the first time where he's the bastard son of a thousand maniacs. I don't know if that's the first time they bring that up. I think it is. That becomes like incredibly trite in the fifth movie, The Dream Child. Right. Um, but sort of like cool at this point and like a neat little like addendum to the mythology mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and I, I like the fact that like they can beat him. Like he's not an invincible, you know, killing machine or it hasn't become like trite at that point. Right. Um, and the fact that, you know, they bring Heather Langenkamp back to play Nancy, which I think is really cool to have mm-hmm. her in the movie. Not that she's, like, a great actress or anything, but, like... She's serviceable. She's fine. Yeah. Um, I don't know, just everything about it. Like, I, I, I like the way it looks. There's very few one-liners that feel, I don't know, like, forced. Mm-hmm. The only one I can really think of off the top of my head is, <clears throat> what's the matter, kid? Tongue-tied when he's, like, shooting the... Um, yeah tongue ropes out of his mouth to lash the kid that can't talk to the bed right um well that's based off the whole two thing too with the uh where it's like freddie like kind of like is under the guise of like a nurse or something like that mm-hmm. and that's how they force some breasts into the movie is right because he has to seduce the mute kid to lay down on the bed right 
um, I thought the most, the the one as least as a child, and I'd actually forgotten about it somehow, uh, rewatching it. The one as a child that freaked me out the most, the death was the one where the ten, like, um, he uses the tendons of the kid, like slices his arms open in the dream and then uses the the tendons as the puppet master thing. That, that used to freak me out as a kid, like so much. Yeah, it's pretty, it's it's pretty, pretty uncomfortable and gruesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think my favorite is the girl that wants to be the actress, um, where Freddie's on, is it Carson that he's on in the, yes, in the TV and then they, he grabs her and like smashes her into it. Mm -hmm. Um, I always thought that was really cool. Yeah. Um, this is, I, I, I like the, them going back to the house on Elm Street, um, kind of playing with like the idea of like the floors not being steady and like the walls falling apart. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it really, it's, it's good, you know, visual interpretation of like what a dream feels like. Yeah. Um, which I think a lot of the other Elm Street movies kind of fall short on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's a fun movie. It's England does a really good job being Freddy. Like, you know, again, like having that combination of like menace and like wry sarcastic wit. But that wry sarcastic wit is meant to like drive home the idea that, you know, he's just a psychopathic child killer. Um, I don't know. It's it, it's funny because this is really the point where I think Nightmare on Elm Street three. I'm trying to think as a kid, like there was a point where everybody had some sort of Freddy memorabilia. Or toy or something like that. And it was more... It became less horror and just more... Like I said, like it's just yeah. marketing. You know, it's just a... I was Freddy Krueger two years after this for my school's Halloween. Or actually Halloween, I guess. I was Freddy Krueger that year in 1989. Yeah, I mean, and you probably had like one of the claw... The claw yeah, the yeah. plastic claws, yeah. Like everybody... Like you'd go and to the... Freddy s- Mask, they were... Yeah, they'd, they'd, they'd go really, to the store and you'd buy like the claw, like the Halloween and then my section. mom like made me like the sweater and everything. So, but in this movie, like he's still... I don't know if he's necessarily fully... I don't know, dispersed into like the public conscious at this point. Mm-hmm. Where he is like a... Because I, you know, I mean, fucking Kenner or Hasbro or somebody had a Talking Freddy action figure. Sure. And, like, there was t-shirts and lunchboxes and an NES game. Right. right. <clears throat> and I think you play Freddy in the NES game? I don't I don't know. It's a terrible game. Um, But, yeah, just, like, it, it still is, like, has that feeling of danger and mystique to it. And, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's a fun movie. Yeah. It's my, it's not the best Nightmare on Elm Street movie because I still think number one is, like, the most technically proficient and, like, the best directed. Sure. And it's really hard for, to beat Wes Craven, like, at his own game, really, in that respect. But it's definitely the most fun Nightmare on Elm Street movie, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's the same way I always describe Raiders of the Lost Ark and Temple of Doom as Temple's the funnest, but I think Raiders is obviously, like, the superior film. Right. Uh, yeah, that's Yeah, I, I feel the same way about this. Were you surprised by <clears throat> the 68% from audiences because most people that you know think this is the best one? Or at I've, least, like, like, even if it's not the best, like, the, the one that they kind of go to the most. Like. Right. I've never met anyone that doesn't like this movie. Right. That's a fan of horror. Yeah. 
<clears throat> I guess that's what's always weird about the audience participation or audience appreciation score on Rotten Tomatoes is like, if you don't like a movie or like if you're not a fan of the genre, like why are you bothering to go and, you know, rate it? I guess. Well, it's the same reason anybody does <clears throat> anything online. Like, yeah. Is, you know. I mean, they, what, they what was Critics? Get... 72%? Like, that's about 74. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that, that seems right to me. Right. There's not a whole lot to complain about in it. Like, yeah. it's competently directed. It's, the special effects are really good, you know, especially for the time period. Yeah, not, and the fact that you say that, uh, Eber gave it one and a half stars and says that the special effects and acting are good. Like, he likes all of that. But that he never felt any sympathy. All the characters seem to drift in a machine-made script, a script devised as a series of pegs to hang the special effects on. I never really cared about the kids. The byplay between the doctors and administrators was assembled from standard institutional cliches. And that's really, like, his main gripe in his review was the, the idea that he doesn't really care about those kids at all. The second part I can agree with. The first part, I don't know. I mean, like... You know, it's not fucking Dead Poets Society or anything, but I think that they build enough backstory in each of those kids where you kind of sympathize with them a little bit or empathize. You know, I mean, they're all broken homes and troubled pasts. And I mean, obviously, they're being stalked by sure. like an ethereal child murderer and their parents are fucking scumbags. So it's, you know, pretty easy to understand. But I don't know. I mean, the only thing I can think is maybe they could have had more character moments possibly with some of those characters to try to get you to relate to them maybe a little bit more sure. as opposed to... Make the movie 15 minutes longer and have like a couple more scenes of interaction. Yeah, you're probably right. But I mean, that's not what these Because I think are. it's like I was complaining to you this week about modern horror and how like I'm really tired of seeing preteens being haunted or stalked or right. those kind of things. And it's like, it's, it's an interesting thing. Like... I said that like it used to be teens or adults right. at one point as opposed to preteens. And here, like in the 80s, we have a lot of teens. Right. Often. And well, it's because you can get an actor in their early 20s to play a teenager and show their boobs. I mean, that's pretty much sure. why it's sure. teens. Right. Because you can get a... Like, you don't ever want to get into the uncomfortableness of like, trying to sexualize like a eight-year-old you know what i mean so right, but then yeah. like one of the parts of one of the f formula parts of formula of horror you know like all throughout the 80s is you know blood and breasts like you got to show some bosoms and you got to show somebody like getting stabbed sure there's that aspect i also still think it's like i wonder if one of the reasons it went to preteens over the years more is because it's the the cheapest it's the cheapest kind of heat right it's like if it's if it's adults adults are whatever considered more capable of defending themselves and doing you know more rational thought and then it's cheap heat to go to the teenagers because they're more impressionable they're less you know whatever the stereotypes of teenagers are so they're 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 they can't defend themselves as well and we got so far into the teens that it became just boring and it wasn't as quite as effective, and now we're down to preteens again in terms of yeah, I mean, like getting cheap heat, like on the villain or the entity or whatever it is. I think that's sort of true. I think that it's easier to feel like a protective 
fear for a innocent sure. child. Absolutely. Rather than like some horny teenager. Oh, absolutely. Right. Sure. Um, but there's a couple movies from the past decade that I can think of like right off the top of my head that use teenagers into an effective, mm-hmm. like it follows those mm-hmm. teens are mostly sympathetic and that's mm-hmm. a good movie. Um, hereditary, you know, the, the kid is a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and he comes off as mostly sympathetic and, you know, um, I don't know. Although you still have that preteen element with the sister though. And right? she's, she yeah, she's like 11 or 12 yeah. in the movie. Yeah. I think, I want to say middle school, I think that character right. is supposed to be in, but you're right. Preteen, yeah. like prepubescent. Um, I don't know. I, I, it, it's funny because when you mentioned that, I started thinking about it. And, like, I started thinking of all these movies that have, um, like, that preteen, like, child element in it that are horror, especially recently. And I didn't even, like, I never really thought about it before. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's something to do with, like, I don't know. I can't yeah, even think right. of it. Right. I just find it interesting because it's, like, if, if it really is, to some degree, cheap heat, where do you go after preteens like what what's the next thing you have to either restart again or in you know i i don't know but um yeah i with them being teenagers i just wonder if like they're just not relatable enough for ebert possibly maybe no is, is what it is and maybe if you did add a little bit more like to their characters to make them relatable then um okay so, moving on to number four. Number four on the list is John Carpenter movie, Prince of Darkness, starring Donald Pleasance, Jameson Parker, Victor Wong, Lisa Blunt, and Dennis Dunn. Has a 58% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 60% from audiences. Hmm. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it so much? So, this priest assembles, I don't know what you call him, like a dream team of academics mm-hmm. um, in this abandoned church i guess it is building um to research this cylinder that's been found that contains this liquid um they find that it's a scripture inside it that i guess the liquid is the physical embodiment of satan basically um i think he terms it anti-god in interviews yeah something like that um so the liquid starts to like infect people and basically turn them into um, devil worshiping zombies, or you know, like automatons, basically. Um, also causes the homeless people in the area to be influenced and to kind of become like a personal army of Satan. Um, so then it becomes sort of a race against time to figure out like what can they do to stop it. Um, as their numbers dwindle, as like more people get infected or die. Um, that's it. Really, like, it's kind of not a very, I don't know, not a completely bleak ending, but, you know, basically the one chick sacrifices herself to push Satan back so that he can't be reborn or come out of the mirror or whatever. Describing it, it sounds like a really stupid movie. Um, I mean, it's, it is kind of a bleak ending, though, because the the thing that is going to happen in, in the future is still going to happen, right? Right. Yeah, there's no stopping, like, I don't know. I guess that's the end result, is that it's just inevitable. 
so, but so, she's okay. she's still stops him from manifesting like at that, that point in that moment right right actually i don't know that it, i i think it's always been ordained that she was just going to be stuck yes like forever in hell and that's right. just what it shows is, yeah of how how she right the thing with the shadowy figure in the videotape that they see yeah. in the house and it or not in the house but in like through the doorway mm-hmm. um and it turns out that it's her right um so yeah they thought they were stopping it like the, the idea is they were getting these transmissions sent to them through their dreams from the future and they thought they were like stopping it from happening now but it was always going to be it was always going to happen no matter what because they got it wrong right like who they thought was going to be the like the embody uh, the embodiment of that entity or whatever <clears throat> So, what things did you? Because uh, there's a lot of really good things in this. There is, and like, what what elements did you like of it? Because I think it's a really mixed bag, but I think there's a lot of really great things in it. Um, I like the general idea of because usually it's <clears throat> in possession movies or the coming of the Antichrist movies. It's almost always mysticism or spiritualism that is the force to combat. The idea of, like, the priest assembling scientists to try and use modern knowledge and logic and intellect to fight it is a really interesting idea. Sure. Um, The way that it's filmed, it's actually, it's very, like, I don't know, I don't want to say anti-Carpenter, but it's it's an interesting departure for him in, like, the terms of, like, pacing and the way that he films a movie. It actually has a very strong, in terms of like, it's like the beats of the movie and the way that it's filmed, feels like it has a very strong connection to like the late 70s, early 80s, like Italian zombie movies, like particularly um, Lucio Fulci and um, Jess Franco and the way that they, uh, Umberto Lenzi, like the way they film movies, Mm -hmm. Um, just with like the... The idea that there's things like lurking outside of your immediate area perception that could be there in a second to like kill you. Yeah, and we talked about this a little bit last night after you've been drinking, and I said Argento, and you correct me about Fulci, and and you're right, but I was thinking about it more and like watching some very short clips just to kind of like visually of like what's going on that reminded me of Argento. There's a lot of stuff outside with openness. Like yes. open area scenes and like those, uh, I can't remember what type of lens it is, but like basically like the wide lens right, that it, he uses outside. And even in the background, the there's like green lights rather than just like regular, like kind of like right. white flu- like white fluorescence and stuff like that in the buildings. And it gives it this kind of green glow. And um, I think those outdoor scenes and stuff like that is what kind of like I was thinking of with the Alice Cooper stuff in it that right. reminded me of Argento in some ways. So but I think is, you're right about the plot of the second half and the way it's filmed and stuff. I think it's very Lucio full. So I agree. I mean, one of the things that Argento is big on is the idea that even if you have, even if you feel like you have a lot of places to run, you still can't escape. Like being able to run away isn't necessarily an indicator of safety like you still can get killed even if you think you've got like all this room um but that also is like a lot of the zombie movies from the late 70s and early 80s have that same feel mm-hmm. um gates of hell and uh city of the living dead specifically sure 
um, I think about in the sense of like, you know, like just the fact that like these things are going to get you because you can never truly anticipate or and like they're powered by evil. I mean, you know, this is like you said, the anti-God is like what's powering them. Um, so I like that. Um, I like how unlikable a lot of the characters are mm. and they're unlikable, I think on purpose and not because he wants you to be happy when they die, but just because I think he really wants to kind of present them as these more or less like, cause they're all experts in their field, whatever their field is. And a lot of them are just kind of, you know, you get the impression they're shut-ins basically that are like academics that do nothing but research their one thing. Um, and there's some really funny moments that come out of that. Like, uh, what is the, the Asian guy's specialty is something I can't remember. You mean, uh, Dennis Dunn or, uh, Victor Wong, Victor Wong. Oh, he's like, it's like particle, like physics. Like all these people are assholes for the most part. Like there's not a lot of like, aside from Danforth and. Well, not a lot of characterization either, other than, like, these kind of, like, signs that they're either assholes or not assholes. Yeah, that's true. But I like that. I don't know. Like, yeah, I, sure. No, it works. I think it works really well. I like I the like, way that it looks. Um, I like the way that he films a lot of the interior stuff feels very claustrophobic, which I like. Agreed. I think that's a really effective tool, and, like, especially... I hate calling this a zombie movie, but inherently, that, that's what it is. It's like a zombie movie mixed with a apocalyptic... You know, I think that's part of its problem to some degree, but go ahead. Um, like when they're coming after them in when they're when it's the end, like the end game and they're what's his name is trapped in the closet and he's trying to get out the other side of the closet while the possessed or I guess that's it. They're like possessed, you know, whatever soldiers trying to come in on the other side. And I think that's really effective. Um, I like the idea of the embodiment of evil not being like for the majority of the movie, what you would traditionally think of like, it is just this like viscous, like goop basically. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. really cool. Mm-hmm. And like the liquid, like dripping upside down off the ceiling and, right. or I guess like pulling upside down on the ceiling, not dripping necessarily, but. And then, like, those squirts of, like, liquid going into the people. Like, it's disgusting. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah, I, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, it looks filthy, and it looks, like, really poisonous. And it kind of, like, it makes you feel, like, uh, like, uncomfortable watching it. Um, and I like the, I, I, again, like, I really like the idea of the religious man being willing to accept the help of, like, the scientific community. Mm-hmm. To combat the evil as opposed to just being, you know, Father Merrick with a cross, like the power of Christ compels you, you know, because that's... And I like the, I like the scientists trusting and believing in the man of faith. Right. Because they're so fascinated, like they all, like that's their, I mean, in most of their cases, that's their downfall is their innate scientific curiosity to try and figure it out. Sure. Like from their own perspective. But, you know, there's just, um, I, I like the... The transmission thing, like, that's always really effective to me when you have, like, a thing that you've seen repeatedly through the movie that then comes to be something else. Yeah, um, and I don't know if you read about it, but how he filmed that is he filmed it, played it on a television, 
an old television set and then film the television set to get that effect on it. Which I thought was really cool. Like, I think that's a really cool. That is really cool. Because it's, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the best ideas in the movie to me. Yeah. It's one of the more interesting ones. It's very kind of 12 monkeys esque in some ways, like to me, for some it reason. Is. That's interesting. And also that like, I don't know. He's like it. It like like you said. It didn't help anything. You know. Like, right. Even though they stopped it, yeah. then like it's still in his head, and he's still like there, like going to let it out of. You know, mm-hmm. it just delayed it a little bit. Um, and the Al- Alice Cooper, you know, being in it, I always thought it was really cool. Like that's yeah. one of the things I liked the most. Right. When I was younger, watching it, uh-huh. and again, just because it's so much different than, and Carpenter is probably the best at like changing up his subject matter and like what he does Mm -hmm. movie to movie. Um, but just the pacing and the tone and even the subject matter is just so much different than the other things he's done Mm -hmm. that, you know, this is almost a more worthwhile successor to the exorcist than like the exorcist too. Honestly, Mm -hmm. like this is a, a better demonic possession movie. Right. Um, yeah, I agree with that, but I just, you know, I, I really enjoy it. Um, Again, like, I really like the way it looks. I love, like, the feel of that abandoned building with, like, the basement. And I love the way that, like, the technology around, like, the goop, like, looks. Mm. And that cylinder with, like, the spinning. Sure. You know, that's that's really cool to me. So, the common criticism of this movie, Ebert expresses it. And I'm just going to summarize Ebert and a lot of other critics. Is that the first half of this movie has a lot of intriguing stuff. And the idea is you're kind of promising this fight between good and evil. Right. That then it turns into a zombie movie. And it doesn't really deliver on that promise of an ultimate showdown of any way. And that's kind of when you title something. I think Ebert specifically mentioned this. When you title something The Prince of Darkness, that's not what you're expecting out of this from the setup. Agreed. I mean, I think you actually expect to see the Prince of Darkness at some point. Right. Um, but I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm I'm fine with it. I, it's... I think it would have been way too cheesy. I don't know. Maybe not. It's 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 fair criticism. Like, it's yeah. one of the few times you'll ever hear me say that. Yeah. Um, it is does present a lot of really fascinating, like, possibilities in the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really live up to most of those possibilities. But at the same time, like, it's not like the second half of the movie is, like, not effective. Like, it still is a decent horror movie. It's just not the horror movie you're expecting throughout the first, like, 40 minutes of the movie. Right, right. Um, And this is more my thing, is that I think a lot of these actors end up getting misused. That the, the, like, look, I'm a huge uh, Big Trouble Little China Mark, like... One of right. my favorite movies of the 80s. But I just think Victor Wong's really underused here and what he's capable of. I also think Dennis Dunn has a lot of charisma to him that's not used very well. Um, Donald Pleasance is pretty paint-by-numbers here. He is. Um, Jameson Parker, like, not that he was bringing the house down like on Simon and Simon or anything like that. But it's like, but, but he, 
he's really wo- wooden and stiff, I think, throughout a lot of it. He is. That's true. And it's just like, I feel like um, the actors were underused a little at times in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's serviceable. Don't get me wrong. Like, I mean, like, they, they do what they're supposed to do for the function of the plot. But it just feels like he wasn't really draw either... And I have to almost have to blame Carpenter. I don't can't think of anybody else's fault. It would be it's like he's not drawing out of him like a any kind of like nuance whatsoever or like charismatic charismatic performance or anything like that. I wonder if that's on purpose though, because again, I think they're all supposed to just kind of feel like stuffy intellectuals, you know? Right. Like I don't know that they're really meant to have a lot of. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, Maybe I mean, that's not true. Yeah, I don't know. I mean. I don't understand why they're so old either. Like I, that was one of the things I texted you when I was rewatching it was like, I don't understand why like all of these grad students are, um, are like 40 years old. It, it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Like it's really weird. Well, some of them are listed as professors too. So some of them are, yeah. But like most of the, the ones that are like that Wong kind of, they're all his students, like a lot of those people. Like I'm, that's what I'm talking about. Those early scenes with the students and everything. They're right. all grad students, and like all of them are like 40 years old or older. A couple of them are like look like they're 50. Yeah, some people look like they're they're pretty old. Mm. It's just really bizarre. But okay, anything else to say about this movie? No, nah, you know, just this is a movie that I've kind of like vacillated on since I was a kid because I saw it when I was pretty young. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and thought it was okay, and then I watched it when I was a little older, and like it felt like more revelatory to me because I had forgotten about it mostly. Right. Um, and I've seen it maybe four times. Like I think it's enjoyable. I think it's worth watching. I think that pretty much anything Carpenter does up to like Ghost of Mars is, mm. um, at least interesting enough to merit like sitting down and spending the hour and a half watching it. Um, and I think it's got enough like cool ideas that it'll keep you interested, even if you don't think it's like a great movie overall. Yeah. Quick question: as like his apocalypse trilogy, as he calls it, which is this movie, The Thing, and In the Mouth of Madness. Okay. I'm I'm I know things number one for you. Right. Is it this or is it In the Mouth of Madness that would be? Too I like this better than In the Mouth of Madness. Hmm. In the Mouth of Madness is a little too. overtly over the top for me like there's a little too like too much hamminess and in the mouth of madness Mm -hmm. i don't think it's a bad movie but i don't love it to the point where i think a lot of people love it yeah okay all right so number three on your list is prom night two hello mary lou which for my entire life i've always thought was hello mary lou prom night two which makes more sense in the context of the song Yes, it does. It sounds better as well. It does. But it's only because I saw the cardboard cutout had those two things reversed. So for as a child, I thought it was in the right order. So I always thought it was Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. But it's Prom Night 2, Hello, Hello Mary, Mary Lou, directed by Bruce Pittman, starring Wendy Lyon, uh, Lisa Shraj, and Michael Ironside. It is a 36% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 37% from audiences. Man. That's so, rough. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why God, that thirty six and thirty seven percent is wrong? Oh, I don't know that they're wrong. It's they're dumb. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. The movie starts in like the mid fifties. Um, 
with Mary Lou, who's the most popular girl in school, but also unabat like unashamedly promiscuous and mean spirited. Um, she becomes prom queen, but a prank causes her to die. Basically, um, flash forward to the 1980s, where everyone's getting ready for prom. Um, this girl finds. Mary Lou's prom dress and, like, earrings and tiara and shit in this trunk in the school or whatever. Mm-hmm. And basically, like, releases her evil spirit. Um, and then it's a movie about possession. Um, about, you know, the vengeful spirit of Mary Lou trying to come back and right the wrongs of, like, what happened to her, like, caused her death. Um, I think it's got some really good visual effects. I think the acting is above par to actually like pretty good in it with Mm -hmm. especially the lady that plays Mary Lou I think does a really good job absolutely um I I like the girl that's being possessed yes a lot in it I think it's got good pretty interesting use of special effects um the kid like using the computer you know to, I guess, like, quote-unquote, hack, is, like, an interesting, like, innovative thing at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, The joke about that the girl went to, where did she go, Strawbridges or Pennies or something, to get her dress, like, that, I don't know. Right, yeah. It it, it feels, like, firmly set in, like, a community in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of plays on the same idea of uh, the Freddy movies, which is, like, the younger generation paying for the sins of... The older generation, which I think is, you know, kind of a theme that becomes more prevalent, like in the late 80s and early 90s, like as, you know, the boomers get older and then their kids are the ones that start, like, taking over. Um, now, do you think that's something that's sympathizing with the boomers or Gen X? Like, do you think that's, it's, like, it's, boomer... It's, bo- is, are the, are the generation that's paying for the sins, are these boomers that are feeling that way about their parents? Or do you think these are people sympathizing with the Gen X? Um, probably more the former, yeah. uh, because I mean, Mary Lou's killed in the mid fifties, so she would have been yeah. right. 17, 18 years old yeah. uh, when she died in the mid fifties. So she's probably on the outer cusp of greatest generation. I mean, mm-hmm. definitely not True. like from the baby boom. Yeah. So this probably is more like the tail end of the baby boomers, like paying for those, mm-hmm. those sins. Right. Um, 38% man that's really low yeah yeah I mean there's some good like chase scenes in this movie there's some the characters are good enough for like you feel some sympathy for people when they die um I don't know like I I just I like the way the movie looks a lot I like the like the performances I think are pretty solid and I don't know I think it's just a really fun movie like it's it's definitely one of my favorite horror sequels. Hmm. Um, even though it's less like, it's not a direct sequel in the sense of like really following up from prom night. Um, but it's a cool idea. I like possession movies and I like, like vengeance from the grave as like the theme of a movie. And I think this does a good job of that. Um, and Mary Lou is an effective, you know, villain. Mm-hmm. So context to the 36, percent on that is that there aren't many top critics like a lot of these reviews are more recent 
it is skewed towards more recent reviews. So the top critics of the time weren't even watching this movie. Right. And what few did hated it, don't get me <laughs> wrong. But at the same time, there's only a couple, like these are more recent reviews. So people are watching this for the first time with the context of everything that comes after it. So, of course, they're going to look at it as, like, you know, like, schlocky. Right. I mean, I guess that makes sense. But, like, I've seen thousands of movies since I saw Prom Night 2. Mm -hmm. And actually, the reason this is on the list, I don't know, would have made it if I just randomly watched it one day. Um, Not even necessarily in anticipation of, like, the 87 list, but just because I was like, man, I have really vague memories of this movie and I want to see it again. And I was pleasantly surprised. Like, I really enjoyed it. I think it's paced pretty well. I think that... I think the pacing is... Like, so... I liked this movie when I was a kid, I remember. We talked about it last night. Out of these five, it would certainly be number five for me. That's interesting. Because I think it's a better movie than both Prince of Darkness and... Really? Yeah. I, I, I think that's... I lean more towards the 36% probably with this movie. You know what it is for me? It's, and this is always going to happen, and I don't know that I can ever combat it. It's mm-hmm. like, they feel like teenagers in the 1980s. Agreed. And it feels like the 1980s. Yeah. Like, the sets, the clothing, mm-hmm. the look of it, like, it just, it feels quintessential, like, 80s to me. And I, uh-huh. I'm always a sucker for that. Like, right. I love that stuff. And, again, like, I love Possession and Ghost and Revenge movies. Like, I like the idea of, like, normal people having to try to beat, like, a spirit that you can't possibly beat. Like, I think that's a yeah. really a really cool idea. Yeah. And I, I, I just, I, I like her so much. Like, I think. Yeah, that, I, yeah. The, the, the main female in it that is being possessed, I think, is fantastic. It's one of the best of this type of movie uh, performances I've seen. Agreed. Um, I think she's incredible. And I, I I don't know how to describe it. I agree with you on the relatability, not even the relatability, the, the, the the authentic authenticity of those teens for that time period. It's paced fairly well. It just feels, especially at the end, it just feels cheap and thrown together. Like the plot itself of like the, the, the the whatever the the thing where like you know like what is the steamer trunk like the where everything's held right. and everything and that being this like pivotal part of the plot and then like the ironside stuff and i i, I it's just, oh and worst of all these endings like all these damn movies like from the 80s like the the one where it's like oh hang around for the next movie like Michael Ironside being possessed is like the worst. This was a movie that did not need one of those endings, and it's just like tacked on. That that really bothered me and left a bad taste in my mouth. Is that like two minute ending or whatever? Right. Um. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a fun movie. It's fine, and it has a couple of good performances. And but I don't know. I just thought it definitely was the weakest. That's interesting. Like I and in, the less least artistic in terms of pure enjoyment. Like I love watching. I think it's a lot yeah. of fun. Mm-hmm. And to me, especially with like Bihar, I think that means an awful lot. Yeah. If you can just enjoy like just watching it. Sure. Okay. Let's go ahead and move on to number two. Okay. Okay. So number two on your list is Hellraiser directed by Clive Barker, starring Sean Chapman, Claire Higgins, Andrew Robinson, Ashley Lawrence, 
has a 69% from critics, so 73% from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it so much? Um, so Hellraiser is based off of Barker's own story, The Hellbound Heart, with some elements from some other of his short stories. Um, Frank is this, I don't know what you call him, like explorer slash hedonist that finds this puzzle box in what, like Morocco or the Middle East somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, takes it home and solves it, which causes chains to basically rip him apart um, and kill him. Uh, the puzzle box is restored to its original state and like all that stuff disappears. And then later, Frank's brother uh, moves into the house with his wife, um, who they have like kind of a like a strained relationship because she cheated on him with Frank, like after their wedding. Um, the brother, Larry, cuts himself while they're moving in and blood drips down into the room, the attic where Frank was killed. Um, the blood causes Frank basically to reanimate as a skinless corpse. And he uses his like continued sway uh, over Shit. Julia. Um, the wife to get her to like basically bring him more blood to restore him. Um, basically, it's about this alternate dimension, like hell dimension, um, where pain is inflicted on people that deserve it by these Cenobites, uh, you know, Pinhead who became like one of the most iconic like horror villains, I guess really of all time. Um, Christy, who's the daughter who doesn't really like Julia, um, who's the second wife, like not her mother, um, eventually finds out what they're doing. Um, shit. Frank's basically like taken to hell. Um, and she kind of like beats, not really beats the Cenobites, but is able to escape the Cenobites. And that's continued into the second movie. Right. Um, it's pretty, pretty amazing that this is Barker's directorial debut. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it helps that he's directing like his own material. So he knows it really well, but some of the more like viscerally uncomfortable scenes in any horror movie from the 80s um the skinless like frank when he's a skinless corpse is just like the the whole like rebuilding of his corpse from basically like a fuck what does it start as like his circulatory or nervous system basically Mm -hmm. like rebuilding like the tendons and the gristle and it's just so disgusting yeah um it freaked me out as a child it's really uncomfortable to watch even as an adult, like it's, it's tough. Right. Yeah. It's still effective. Um, the idea of almost like this sadomasochist, like taking pleasure in pain thing, um, of the Cenobites and really just how like the, the design of the Cenobites is just, uh, it's, it's so like visually compelling and like immediately recognizable. I mean, Pinhead is maybe one of the more like next to maybe Freddie or Leatherface, like, one of the more, like, interesting and iconic villains that's not just kind of, like, a one-note thing. Like, you know, 
Jason's the hockey mask. Michael Myers is the Halloween mask. Mm-hmm. But like Pinhead is the leather and the straps and the buckles and the like hundred like nails sticking out of his head mm-hmm. and the voice and just the idea of like basically like there are these creatures that come from like you know from hell like you know that they're opened by you basically have to invite them in for them to come and then like you're kind of just fucked at that point um also some really uncomfortable stuff with the idea of and you you said this a number of times and it's it's something that i thought about but i didn't really think about how like unsettling it is that basically julia just had like really good sex with frank and Mm -hmm. it causes her to throw away like her entire life just to continue it when he's when he's t- when he's like skeletal or right, like, just right, this yeah. like just musculature and skeleton. Yeah, the stuff with him like kissing her like that is really mm-hmm. unsettling. Yes, I I really like. It, it feels very British, like when you watch it, and I mean mm. that in the sense that like the way that Barker films, not necessarily the interiors, because a lot of the interior stuff. I mean, it's, it's very, like, warm, I guess, in the sense that it's meant to, like, I don't know, feel like fire. Not not fiery, maybe, but, like, the haziness of, like, the outside scenes. It all feels very, like, dreamlike, and <clears throat> there's a lot of, like, blues early on, and then, except for the attic, which the attic is always very, like, dark, but also, like, right. warm colors, and I don't know. It's It's... It's it's maybe the most like thought provoking movie on the list. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that it's so. I mean, I guess it was like maybe not as well received by critics just because it's so graphic, and it's really graphic. Like it's mm-hmm. uncomfortably graphic at times. Um, and there's that's there's a really good documentary called Leviathan. Um, I think it's on Prime. That's about the making of this movie and mm-hmm. how they, like what the actors had to go through, how they secured financing for it. Like Barker's not in the documentary, but it's, um, I can't remember his name. The guy that played Pinhead in most of the movies and some of the other Cenobites and then some of the other actors in it. And just like what it took to, you know, like to make that movie. Like it's definitely a labor of love um, and really amazing that it's. I can't remember who released this movie, but it's, it was like a real studio that released it. Mm -hmm. Um, just for how like, not even like sexually explicit, but just like the ideology behind it is so explicit, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you mean when you say that? I mean, like it, you don't really get a lot of movies outside of like real counterculture stuff from like the seventies, like, um, Venus and furs and, some Italian, like, giallo stuff that really deals um, with the idea of, like, mixing pain and pleasure and pushing yourself to, you know, going beyond just, like, sexual gratification that you have to, like, experience more and more. It's almost, you know... It's, it's the be- yeah, go ahead. Because we're, we're watching Mindhunters now, mm. um, the second season. And you get a lot of talk from, like, when they interview the serial killers about how they couldn't achieve normal sexual gratification. So, like, they only achieve it, like, release in the murder. Like, it's the extreme act of taking another life. Right. And to have something around this time 
you know, especially because you're right on the heels of the moral majority and, you know, um, like Phyllis Shafley, like very, like, you know, um, what's her name? Tipper Gore, like very much trying to censor things that are of this like ilk and to have it be like the central focus of a movie where it's Mm -hmm. basically how far is too far to achieve pleasure? Like how much is too much to push yourself and to like tackle those ideas that really do come up when you like read and like learn things about serial killers as like a central focus to your movie. I mean, it's really daring to do that. Sure. Um, I was going to say that Stuart Gordon last month, we were talking about the Stuart Gordon movie, which is very similar in premise. It is with that doctor also doing the same thing. Right. Trying to tap into the pineal gland. To, right. Yeah. Like achieve like, you know, and, but that, so that's, that's even almost more sanitized than, than this because that at least has the guise of scientific endeavor mm-hmm. behind it. And right. this is nothing but pure animalistic hedonism sure. that's pushing, you know, that drives Julia to like basically sacrifice her family that pushes mm-hmm. Frank to do whatever he can to like achieve these things. And what eventually draws the interest of the Cenobites is that, you know, that just raw... I don't know, like, like that anything is worth paying if you can like feel good about doing it. And it's, mm-hmm. I mean, Barker's a really interesting guy and he's pretty obsessed in his writing with the idea of like mixing, especially like sexual pleasure with like death and pain, but just the idea of like that people are willing to like push themselves and sacrifice things if they think it can make them feel good, like mm-hmm. and take risks. Right. Um, and he's, an uneven writer. Like I like a lot of Barker stuff, but some of his stuff is just way too, he's got a little too much like purple prose in his writing sometimes. Um, but it's perfectly captured here. Like visually, you know, I mean, you feel like visceral reactions to the things you're seeing on screen. Sure. And it definitely like can evoke a lot of like hard emotions out of you. Mm -hmm. And have you um have you seen the sequel to this? At some point in my life, yeah. I have. Um it's basically <laughs> like a direct sequel. I mean the yeah. later Hellraiser movies kind of just are more tangentially related just in the sense of like keeping the idea of the Cenobites and whatever. Sure. And there's a lot. there's a lot more mythology in those later movies, right? About the Cenobites, is that correct? Yeah, it, they, doesn't she end up becoming like the daughter in this? Band, end up becoming a Cenobite or some shit? Like, uh, in one of those later, certain, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's like thirteen Hellraiser movies right, or something. Yeah. I haven't seen sure. half of them. Maybe I've seen like six <clears throat> Hellraiser movies. Um, yeah, they, it's always about like increasing the mythology and. Mm-hmm. Like, the funny thing is, in the second movie, they become almost beatable by um, human desire. Mm-hmm. Like, a human desiring, like, it goes even beyond what they can, and eventually, like, they win, I guess, quote unquote. But, um, you know, but then, like, the end of this movie where the box just goes back to the guy that sold it to Frank in the end, that it's, like, always going to be this repeating cycle that maybe that's the thing is it's people that want it enough. Like that's the price you have to pay and that you can never like get rid of the evil or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And the fact that, like, Christy, who's the only innocent in the movie, really. I guess you could argue Larry, I guess, whatever the husband is kind of an innocent. He's yeah. also just kind of a doofus. He is. Mm. Not even a doofus. He's just bland. Right. It's like, um, the, I don't know if this is a parallel at all, but it's kind of like the father in Stranger Things. Um, sure. Absolutely. That's yep. just a guy. You see just, him sleeping on the so or like on a, on his chair a lot of yeah, times. Yeah. When she's like contemplating cheating on him. Sure. You know that he's just this provider who's a good father and mm-hmm. can't really see beyond like yeah. you know the mundane aspects of like right. the can't real really world. help the moving guys move the <coughs> bed upstairs, the mattress upstairs or whatever. Like, yeah. You know, has and to, is, cuts and himself, is like mocked when, and sure, you know, belittled and doesn't really have yeah. the wherewithal to defend himself. Sure, ineffectual. I mean, yeah, that's ineffectual. Good. That's that's a good way to put it. Um, and that, but it, it, it it's like really almost like unsettling questions to ask yourself, like, you know, because she obviously wants the dark, mysterious, you know, brother, yeah, guy that gave her like, like this amazing sex, right. You know, I find the scene really disturbing too with her when she, because he he had been living there and she finds photos that he took, like Polaroids of him like having kind of light bondage sex with like another woman, and that she like steals the photographs and keeps them yeah. and takes them with her, which I find also really disturbing. It's like it shows like the mental hold that he still has on her even before any of that happens. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, there it's it's a very like uncomfortable movie again. I it think is. like psychologically and ideologically, and then also just right visually. That, just and I think of, that's what makes this such a strong movie still to this day is that there's so many different types of horror. You have the body horror aspects. You right. have the psychological like relationship kind of horror. You have the stuff with you know um, the the hellish aspects of right. Things. It's got spiritual like, horror elements, right? Spir- spiritual horror. Yeah, I mean, it's like you just have so many different types of horror that I mean, I'm sure some people could be cynical and be like that it's a like a almost like a forced plot in some ways, like you know that it's like too much in one movie. But I think that's what keeps it interesting throughout most of the movie and watching is that there's so many different things happening. Right. There's even like um kind of like a like an I don't know what you would call that, but it's like. It's not possession horror, really, but it's like the Vader Shamar type thing, like the imposter, like when he Frank actually takes over his brother's body. Right. Like there's that horror and which leads to like that whole end sequence where it's like it's her own father that's trying to fuck her and kill right. her. Like, I mean, like, so it's really disturbing in that respect, too. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot going on in this movie that's all really just terrifying. But I mean, ultimately, it's her innocence or her her I maybe not innocence, but her inherent goodness that lets her like close the box and oh, absolutely, oh, sure, sure. Survive. But it's just it's just as a horror movie, I think it's really affected because there's such a variety. Yeah, and it's really well directed. I think. I mean, again, yeah. for being someone's a guy who and Barker, Barker's kind of a Renaissance man in a lot of ways because in addition to being like at this point, a prolific writer. He also is a pretty talented artist. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen any of Barker's like sketches or anything, Mm -hmm. but he's, he's a relatively, I don't know, like adept, like artist. Yeah. Um, so I guess that like, he understands like storyboarding and understands like how to frame scenes probably like better than most, you know, like 
new directors. Like we talked about um time after time last week and how while like the you know, the dialogue and the plot is really tight, like it's a very kind of visually boring movie in the way that it's filmed. Like it feels like a like a debut from somebody that doesn't really know how to direct. Mm-hmm. Like this doesn't feel like that. Like this right. feels like No, I agree, and I think it helps that it's a it's a it's a pretty closed set that yeah. you in terms of it just being almost all within the house and really clever that there's maybe the variety almost stems from the aspect of it, that it has to be on the cheap because I mean, they're not putting a lot of money into it. It's one set, but you have, that's what's even more fascinating is it's, it's just those few rooms in the house that all of this really takes place in most of the time, but it still feel, it doesn't feel like that. It feels bigger than the set itself which I find really interesting because it's really small when you think about it. It is like it's, it's, there's not a lot of, you know, well, the majority of the money went into the visual effects. Sure. Everything's sure. practical. Right. I mean, obviously, cause it's yeah. this time period. Right. Um, but I, yeah, I've never, I, I've, I've read a couple Barker novels that Wesley got me to read like back in the nineties. Like yeah. I, I don't even remember their titles. Like I, if I looked at titles of his books, I would tell you which ones they are. But, um, but yeah, I thought that they were pretty good. Uh, hard, he, yeah. The the books of blood are worth reading, at least like the mm-hmm. first three, and those are his short story collections. That's where this comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, some other stuff too. Uh, really good in the vein of like Richard Matheson, Stephen King esque, like very self contained, like twenty page stories that tell like a compelling story, but aren't like overly verbose or anything. Um, the Quiddity trilogy, um, great and secret show. I can't remember the other ones. Those are fine, but they're much better to read. If you're like a 17 year old kid and not so mm-hmm. much as an adult, like there's a lot of really kind of like eye rolling type things mm-hmm. that happen in them. Um, my favorite Clive Barker book is, uh, the thief of always. Mm-hmm. which he wrote as like a children's book almost. It's like kind of a young adult novel. Um, that's incredibly well-written and really like, again, like I think maybe his best work um, about a place that exists. It like kind of like, have you ever seen Coraline? The, no, I never watched um, it. So I, I, I know enough about it. Similar but, idea where it's yeah. like this house that they uh, like entice children to because like every day is it's a holiday house. Mm-hmm. every day is a holiday but it's really like this ancient creature that devours the spirits of like children in order to stay alive forever mm-hmm. um but to your your earlier point like it's 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 preteen horror sure so, um but that that book's fantastic um he's very much into the idea of like sexuality and also i mean because clive barker's homosexual like he mm-hmm. deals a lot with the idea of like repressed homosexuality and like people I don't know like being tormented for their whatever like sexual proclivities um but also that like you pay like the ultimate price a lot of times for sex in Barker stuff um which is actually like really for as like graphic as a lot of his stuff is it's really kind of moralistic which is weird um, which is another interesting thing about the Cenobites is that they're almost, even though they're, they come from like this hell dimension, they're almost, you know, 
kind of like punishing people for, you know, their, much, I guess is like the, the basic theme of hell, but that they all like, cause that's later mythology is like revealing like the origins of the Cenobites, like where they come from. And mm-hmm. Pinhead was like a Nazi doctor or something mm-hmm. like that is what eventually comes out. It makes it a lot more lame than right. what it is. If you just think of them as like these immortal, sure. like creatures of vengeance or whatever. Right. Um, but in this movie, there's none of that backstory shit. Like they're just mm-hmm. unknowable. Yeah. Cause what's the, I always, I always get it confused because I've seen, the first like four Hellraiser movies a lot. So it's it's Pinhead, it's the lady with the um almost like dental brace thing coming out of her face. Mm, the fat one. The fat guy and the one that's just all teeth, right? right. Like it's just a big mouth. Right, yeah. Um they add a lot more like later. Yeah. Some of the Cenobites are like the C D Cenobite is just ridiculous. Um but I mean, it's, it's, they're all really visually compelling. Like, I, I love that aspect of it. Like, and again, like, I think that Pinhead is maybe at least like visually and like conceptually, like my favorite horror villain that's appeared in like multiple, you know, multiple movies, mm-hmm. him or Leatherface. Like, I love the realistic approach to Leatherface where there's nothing supernatural about him. He's just a fucking skin wearing serial killer. Right. I like this opposite end of that where. It's all supernatural mm-hmm. with Pinhead. So, let me hear some criticism because I'm curious. I think you can imagine what it is. Like, Ebert hated it. Tell me about Ebert. Yeah, half star. Yeah. Um, it's 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 always I didn't copy and paste most of this because it's always the Ebert review for things that horror movies that he doesn't like, which is who goes to see movies like this? What do they get out of them? I like good horror movies because I enjoy being surprised and even moved sometimes, but there are no surprises in Hellraiser, only a dreary series of scenes that repeat each other. What fun is it watching a movie mark time until the characters discover the obvious? This is a movie without wit, style, or reason, and the true horror is the actors were made to portray and the technicians to realize its bankruptcy of imagination. Man, that's... um. Number one, that's just really wrong. Sure. Like, all of those points are basically the opposite. Like, I I saw Hellraiser when I was, I don't know, 13 maybe or 14. Probably yeah. still, like, a little too young to see Hellraiser. I saw it when I was nine. Right. So, yeah, that's that's yeah. rough. I was I was terrified. You saw it on VHS at nine? So you saw, like, an Nope, it was version? on uh, HBO. Oh, well, that's the same thing. I, it was the very first time I, uh, nine was the first time I actually spent the night over at anybody's house. And I spent the night over at Wesley's house and we watched it at like 2 a.m. in the morning. Right. <clears throat> um, I think it's surprising the first time you see it. Yeah. Like, I think that it definitely catches you off guard. I absolutely don't know how it's bankrupt of imagination. Like, I sure. think it's the exact opposite of that. Um, yeah, that's Ebert's like weird moral code, I yeah. think. So Jonathan Rosenbaum uh, of the Chicago Reader says, whatever happened to movie plots, this 1987 first feature by celebrated English horror writer Clyde Barker starts off with a potentially viable one and shows some flair with cutting and framing that bodes well for the future. But at the point where the characters in this magic box haunted house tale should be turning into something more than cardboard, Barker turns them into chocolate pudding, pulling out all the stops 
letting Bob Keane's jazzy special effects take over and asking plot, character, and logic to take an aimless walk around the block. None of this is the fault of the actors. Andrew Robinson, Claire Higgins, Ashley Lawrence, and Sean Chapman are uniformly good for what little they're asked to do. Minor grisly fun, but don't expect the movie to linger when it's over. Which is also just a really historically proven wrong. By um, that, but. What does chocolate pudding mean? Just like smooth and forgettable? I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand that. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's... I think it's a movie that definitely stays with you. I agree. Like, for long periods of time. And I obviously, from a pop culture aspect, like, that's supported just by the... I mean, in the the early to mid-2000s, I can't remember which Hellraiser came out then. Maybe the one in outer space or something. But um, there was a huge amount of, like, Hellraiser merchandise that was produced. Like, imitation, um, uh, the box. What is it called? The something codex, right? Is the name of that box. Um, then, like, action figures. And, I mean, again, like, it's, it's something that's definitely, like, entered the public conscience as... You know, just from the from Pinhead, like Pinhead, sure. Again, one of the more recognizable horror villains. And we could have easily have sat here if we wanted to. I think we were shorting it a little bit. We could have easily sat here and I think talked about the dynamics between the four main characters in this. It's true, and some of the subtleties of things. Because I mean, and I don't want to go into it now because we've already kind of talked about it enough. I think, but. We could have talked about that for another half hour, probably, or at least 20 minutes. Right. I mean, I... And again, I think it's because Barker knows his own material so well. Sure. There is a lot of subtlety between, like, their interactions. Sure. And even though, like, from the interaction of... And I know you said, that, like, just move past it, but from Larry to Julia is one of, like, submission and weakness. Sure. Like, there's a lot of love and affection between... Um, Kathy is that the name of the daughter? I can't remember. Whatever. Her and like her father. Sure. And like simmering animosity between her and the mother and like, right. you know, right. in both directions. Like it's just there. And then there's like the comments that he makes about, you can kind of get the relationship between him and Frank by comments that he makes. Right. That he like thinks he doesn't really respect Frank whatsoever. Like, you know. Right. Because Frank's just this like vagabond who disappears and just goes off and does whatever he sure. wants. And... Right. But I think there's also jealousy there because he's a Lothario. Right. And something that he, that he himself could never be. I mean, so it's like, yeah, we could like keep talking about this and like get into the, like the, the psychology of these characters. Like right. there, it's not bankrupt. No, like, as, uh, you know, I, it's just uncomfortable. And I think that people yeah. don't right. like being made uncomfortable. Eh, they'll like to be uncomfortable with fucking John Irving writing it, but they won't, <laughs> right. but they won't show like, let that happen in a horror movie. Like, yeah, it's gotta be the, right. The blow job in the car when world according to Garp, and then they can have a conversation. Sure. Yeah. And then like somebody can lose an eye in a motorcycle accident. Right. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, if it's, if it's this like kind of, highbrow you know bourgeois you know settings then it's it's fine but like if you put it in the context of this horror movie then right you know 
and of course people are going to relate more. I think especially Rosenbaum, um, Christ, if you look at Rosenbaum, like, you know, he probably relates to the Larry character much more than anybody else. And here's Larry who's, um, you know, this weak and effectual guy right. who has to run to his wife when he gets a cut because he can't deal with the sight of blood. And, you know, is getting, you know, and he's so weak that he's basically getting cucked by his own brother who is, you know, this, you know, world traveler right. or like, I, I think those type of people like, you know, those, those, those upper end intellectuals and like, look, they're well respected in their fields, all that stuff. But I think that those type of personalities are made uncomfortable by some, by a yeah. plot like this. Yeah, I think everything has to be like kind of like like I said it has to be highbrow it has to be like this like intense psychological well you study. know you know it's interesting like to call back to fuck I don't even know when we talked about this movie um look at like Sid and Nancy like a lot of the reaction to that it's mm-hmm. like when you see a movie that's about people who live through live through their addictions or like compelled by their need to feel good like a lot of people react poorly to that sure as like a like the main driving force of a movie like mm-hmm. people want it to be more <clears throat> abjectly intellectual and not right. so much about like visceral like mm-hmm. human like passion or feeling or whatever sure no yeah. that's why they all like sideways <laughs> right but yeah hellraiser is a really good movie yeah, I, I, th- I i was i was shocked that it held up as well as it did like because I have not watched that movie since 1989. Yeah, I just, I mean, I I watched it again for this. Like, I kind of like skipped through it and just watched like pivotal scenes. And but... I remember most of it. That's the thing. Like, yeah. may, I might have seen bits and pieces here and there in the 90s on I mean, Cinemax a, or something. There's a lot of really, I don't know, like scenes that just imprint themselves. And you like sure. the hammer scene. And again, like him restitching himself together, you know, whatever, 20 some minutes into this movie. Yeah. Is so fucking like agreed. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you'd ever forget it, honestly. Right. I mean, even Andrew Robinson, the actor, like when when it's like you can see the cut on his face when right. Frank like takes over his body, like it takes his face and everything. Like I remember, I remembered that from thirty years ago. You know what else it is too, and then we can move on from this. Is yeah, like right. it's the idea of like the thin chain with like the fish hook at the end. Mm-hmm. Like going into your skin, like right. it's such a, such a like uncomfortable, uncomfortable and almost like terrifying idea of like that happening. That like, oh, I don't know, like that that yeah. always and like the the sound of the chains and everything mm-hmm. about it is just so sure. like orally and visually and just like psychologically, like it hits so many points and mm-hmm. I don't know, yeah. But yeah, it's a really good movie, yeah. Okay, so number one on your list is Near Dark, uh, directed by Catherine Bigelow, starring Adrian Pazdar, Jenny Wright, Lance Hendrickson, Bill Paxton. Has 88% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 74% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it so much? Um, so Pazdar plays a kid, uh, Caleb, living in, what is it, the Midwest, I guess? Um, who meets this beautiful, young, mysterious young girl. She turns out to be a vampire, and she turns him one night. Um, 
you find that she's part of a traveling group of vampires who just kind of like almost like I don't know like a roaming cult who just kind of travel around the country surreptitiously and murder people to stay alive um Bill Paxton Lance Henriksen uh I can't remember the name of the other two um Bill Paxton Severin like maybe my favorite him and Lance Hendrickson are my favorite two characters in the movie like those are the best performances but just like vicious they don't want to keep this guy they just want to kill him until they find out that she turned him then they give him like a brief period where he can prove himself basically that he's vicious enough to stay with him um he doesn't have it in him like he's not somebody that can murder people and he basically needs to rely on her to basically kill people and then he drinks her blood they kind of give him a reprieve because he sort of helps them out when they're um, in danger in a hotel, you know, where they have to escape. Um, but ultimately, he he goes back home, gets a blood transfusion, which to me is like one of the more interesting premises of this movie that like the blood transfusion can cure the vampirism. Agreed. Um, then they come, Homer, who's uh, kind of the... When did um Interview with the Vampire come out? The book, the book, yeah. Oh, uh, nineteen around this time. So I wonder what's first, like whether she was inspired by the idea of like the eternal little kid who's like lived for possibly like centuries, but I think he's like decades old at that point, but still trapped in like a little kid's body. Yeah, which is is a good plot point. Um, so yeah. Homer wants to take um Caleb's younger sister and turn her. So he can have a companion that's his size, like forever. Um, the kidnapper, nineteen seventy six. Oh, was Jesus. the novel. Yeah. So I guess that this is inspired by that. Then probably right. like this idea. Um, they eventually like rescue the girl. Um, really great scene with Severin being run over by. Uh, 18 wheeler and then blown up like to finally kill him um Henriksen and his his wife or whatever rattlesnake is that what they call her whatever her name is mm-hmm. um dying to like the sun like coming into their um hurt them and homer like getting consumed by the sun and then the young girl vampire getting like the transfusion and being saved uh which is a oddly like you know positive and happy ending sure um, I love the visual style of the movie. Um, I like the way that Bigelow films it in a way where it feels, if like, it reminds me a lot of Cecil County in the 1980s, mm. where there's just a lot of like empty open space and dark highways and places where you could imagine like vampires like being able to lurk and get away with this stuff. Um, even though sure. like, you know, they murder everyone in a bar. So I don't know how like you can, yeah. can do things like the that. Bar, and That's funny that you say that. I never thought of it like that. The bar reminds me like kind of like Pine Grove almost. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's true. That makes sense. Um, I love the performances in it. Like Pazdar is probably like maybe the weakest performance in it. Like he's just kind of a, I don't know. I, I guess maybe it was like me. Like I, I saw this movie maybe when I was sixteen or seventeen 
And my initial reaction was like, idiot, like, why don't you just like, you know, turn into a vampire, like just whatever, <laughs> right. just do it. Um, but then I guess like, that's not much of a movie at that point. I think as, as he got older, I think Pazder found his niche, like in terms of playing some variation of a prick, like, right. Agreed. Like the military prick, the politician prick. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean like very good at that. True. Um, I, I love Paxton and Henriksen and I think they're really great performances, especially, especially Lance Henriksen is, um, oh, see, I would say especially Paxton. I think it's one of Paxton's best movie roles, honestly. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, Hendrickson to me feels like he doesn't, it's like, he's really good in it. Don't get me wrong, but it's like, I feel like he doesn't get enough screen time at times. Where he doesn't have as much to do at times that he, he should have more to do as being the what ultimately is the real villain of this. Right. Well, I think he's almost like world weary in a lot of ways. Like yeah. he's they they intimate not even intimate, they say like specifically at one point that he's been around since the Civil War. Right. Um, so at this point he's like hundred and fifty years old. Mm-hmm. No, that's not what what kind of bad math is that? Like over a hundred years old, like hundred and ten yeah. years old. Um, but I think he's just more, it's more about like protecting the family than it is like him, like Severin, the Paxton character is the one that truly is into the idea of like murdering Mm -hmm. and killing because he enjoys it. Like he's the psychopath that, Mm -hmm. and Henriksen, like I, he enjoys it too. And like, you know, like they show him taking pleasure in it, but he's more just about like. We got to keep moving. We have to be smart. We have to like make sure that we're not in the same place. Right. He's a survivor. Right. Like, yeah. And that's the reason why everyone else has been able to stay alive because of those survival instincts. Sure. And also how he like got through the Civil War basically is by being mm. a survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, and making him like fighting for the South, like just to add that tiny little bit of like extra like villainy to it. Right. Um, I like the way that they film night and day um it feels like very like hazy which i mean i talk about that all the time it's one of my favorite things in movies is like that look of like um like when the sun is out you know especially like we know they're escaping from the motel or like at the end when you know homer dies and then lance henderson and the -hmm. lady die like it feels hot like the sun feels like prominent and Um, and I just think it's a really, so again, like we talked about, you know, Lost Boys in the, the intro of this and how it's an interesting idea to like place it, you take it out of like moldering castles and place it on the West coast. This is the same thing. Like this is a Western in a lot of ways. And you're taking the vampire out of like the coffin and putting them in like a fucking panel van or whatever, you know? And definitely inspirational in a lot of ways to things that came after. I mean, I think specifically Spike's character in Buffy and maybe even all the vampires in Buffy, I think are more inspired by these characters as like this family of creatures that kind of like slink through like hidden spaces mm-hmm. in order to remain alive forever. Sure. Um, rather than these bold, like guys that could turn into bats and hypnotize you with their eyes and stuff. <laughs> Sure. I mean, right, because I mean, Buffy makes fun of that stuff, right? Like when they show you Dracula, it's like he's a joke in a lot of ways, right? 
Um, and, and so is the master, like the master's this old school guy that stays underground. And it's like, they, they make fun of that aspect yeah. of him because he's not like any of these other vampires. But this is a really interesting look at like, from almost a more logical perspective, what would a real vampire be mm-hmm. like? Like, what would it mean? Yeah. And they're basically just serial killers with, right. you know, certain hindrances that don't let them mm-hmm. like exist in the real world. But I mean, that also is kind of like, you know as an analogy to like the serial killer element where they're, you know, they move through like they avoid detection just by like being able to move and being able to blend in a lot of ways. And, and I love the idea of like the blood transfusion, like curing the vampirism. I think like the first time I saw that, I thought that was incredibly clever. Um, There's a lot of like, I don't have a lot of criticism of this, but you mentioned a couple of things so far. Um, from critics, I don't have a lot here. I mean, it had an 88% and from critics. So I took more from audiences. Okay. A lot of people like hate the transfusion thing. Really? They, think, they just think it's dumb. and which It's not a complaint, but they think it's dumb and unrealistic. So here's what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. First of all, unrealistic. Right, right. Like, I, I, go, that's what I'm saying. It's it's go fuck yourself in right. that that complaint. <clears throat> it really lends more credence to the idea that these there's so most vampire movies there's a tinge of sympathy they try and get you to have, or at least empathy for the vampire, because they're these tortured beings that are like forced into this life. Like that's Anne Rice's fault, right? Interview yeah. with a vampire. I was just right. going to say that Interview with a Vampire is very much like. Yeah romanticizes the idea of the vampire if a blood transfusion is the way you cure a vampire these people are fucking sociopaths that choose to be vampires for no other reason than they love killing humans and they love feeling better than humans because if it was that easy like why would you continue to be a vampire you know like true but it's like isn't this just something that the father tries, though, it seems? Like, and it works? Right, but nobody else would have thought to try it. Like, over the course not, yeah. of, right. you know, yeah. 50 years of modern medicine. Right. Like, if you were really, like, trying to cure yourself of this curse, and that's what, every, like, every vampire is like, oh, it's a curse, you know. Even as, like, far back as Dracula, it's like, like you know, Dracula's, Lugosi's portrayal of Dracula is very romantic and very, like, dark and sensual you know with like the eyes and the hands Mm -hmm. and just like the whole gothic appeal of like the castle and everything and these are just basically murder hobos like traveling around the country that have like some you know supernatural power and like resistance to death and i you know bigelow's a really good director um she's done some really good movies this is her first movie i believe right i think so yeah it's this and then Point Break, I guess, after this. And right. Stranger strange, strange Days. Strange Days, which we disagree on. Right, yeah, you hate that movie. Like, um, You hate that movie. Right. Hate is a strong word. I, it's it's hokey to me, hmm. Strange Days. Um, You know, but then, like, The Hurt Locker and right. Zero Dark Thirty, which neither of those movies I'm... I guess maybe I'm not a huge Catherine Bigelow fan, but I really like um, Point Break and right. Near Dark. Um, She's a very skilled director, though. I mean, like she is incredibly talented director, and I think that I just I, I love this like 
alternative take on vampires. And I always like it when you see a movie, like, I go back and forth on werewolf movies. Like, some werewolf movies I like a lot. But there's stuff like like Ginger Snaps. Have you ever seen Ginger Snaps? No. That's just an interesting look at, like, what it would be like to be a teenage werewolf, basically. Okay. And it's like, when you take, like, these tropes of monsters that have existed in film since the beginning of film and you do something different with them. It just, it's more interesting to me. And so, right. It's funny that you mentioned werewolf movies because the person that came to mind in terms of how I think you're thinking about Catherine Bigelow right now is Neil Jordan for me is that I think he's a really talented guy and a really good director and most of his subject matter. I'm not a fan of, right. You know, and I think I probably feel similar to you do about Bigelow is it her her film choices are interesting because she starts with two relatively subversive films i mean point break and this movie are both right marginally counterculture but definitely like really interesting looks at like people that live on the fringes of society Mm -hmm. um in this case is doing the same thing right you're right that's true um even like again even though i'm not a huge fan of it like it is a lot of interesting ideas there <clears throat> but um right then there's there's a shift yeah, yeah like like k19 and zero dark 30 and hurt locker like all those things are i'm sure they're I, hurt locker is a fine movie like it's mm-hmm. fine mm-hmm. but it's just not anything that i'm interested in yeah you know and maybe that's just me maybe no i thought i watched it and thought that it was dull it's the argument that we have about about link letter too sure like here's a talented director that just a lot of times is filming things that aren't necessarily interesting to right. like to watch. Right. Um, Scorsese too can be like that. Like yeah. fascinated by something where he wants to make a movie and you're like, man, like I don't like, like Kundun or whatever. Right. Well, that's like an interesting premise. Like man, it's the most boring movie. So yeah. Um, but this Cronenberg movie Cronenberg can be the same way. Who? Cronenberg. Yeah. Like, when he gets too much into the sex stuff, right. like, yes. I think he loses track of... Well, Crash, and right. not, like, the terrible Crash, but Crash and, like, existence and... um, Even Dead Ringers, to a point. Like, I like Dead Ringers, but Dead Ringers yeah. is a little too psychosexual at times. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, she does a fantastic job here. Um, It's a really... I think a really enjoyable movie to watch. I think it's got some really great like takes on the idea of vampirism and what being a vampire is. Um, and Paxton and Henriksen are both, I think like fantastic in their roles. Mm. You're right. Like Pat Paxton especially is just really like really embraces the bad guy that he doesn't really get to be. Yeah. It's a gleeful performance. Like he's just having fun. It's, um, I forgot Bill Paxton died. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. You know That's what? You know you know why you forgot it? Why? Because Bill Pullman's still alive. That's probably true. That's probably true. Because I, for a long time, I I did have like I think it was in the early two thousands. I used to think of him as the same person. Right. Well, you I think a lot like of people the same did. person. Paxton, but, but, yeah, but they're not though. Like no, no, the, not not even a little bit. Right. Paxton's interesting. Like, yeah. I mean, he's in a bunch of crap. For a long time. And then Weird Science, Commando, Aliens. This movie. Right. And then back to being in a bunch of crap. He's been in a lot of movies. Yeah. 
Hmm. Yeah, I guess he died in 17, right? Yeah, I think so. I for, I completely forgot. Probably because we weren't doing shots for him back then. No, we were. We, we, we did a Bill Paxton shot. How the hell did shot. we... We didn't do a Bill Paxton shot. We did. We did an alien shot for him. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay. I think I have a picture somewhere of the Bill Paxton shot. Uh, okay. it's, it was the Game Over Man shot. I don't remember that. I remember it. <laughs> he died right around when Leonard Neboy died, right? Oh, uh, okay. Like somewhere in that same like Maybe. Era? Maybe. I think Leonard Nimoy is the first like shot that I remember doing yeah. that was like specifically for. That's the first one I remember because we did it in like Leonard Nimoy's like Spock like color like that blue shot. Right, we did a Mister Fuji shot around that time too. <laughs> yes, um, that's that's one that was one of the first ones that we started doing. So yeah, because we had to look up like Japanese theme shots. Right. Um. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I I think Near Dark is free somewhere now, right? No, no, I had to, I had to pay for it, unless it's on one a year, like mm, fifty thousand. I don't think so. Subscriptions. I actually, so now before I come over, I'm like starting to try and look up these movies briefly to see, like, I know that you write down everywhere they are, but I try and see, like, if I have them anywhere extra that you might not see immediately. And Near Dark, I think, was not anywhere. Sure. I still write those things down um, when I'm looking them up. So, uh. So, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, if people want to know, like, about this, it's like, uh, Prince of Darkness, uh, I think you have to pay for right now, it seems like. No, no, it's free somewhere. It has to be, like, Shudder or something. It's not on any of, like, the yeah, major... Yeah, I think it is Shudder. Okay. Um, Hellraiser is free on Hulu. Uh, Prom Night 2 is free on Tubi. And the other two uh, nightmare on elm street three and near dark i had to pay for nightmare on elm street three is free on shutter because okay. all the nightmare on elm streets are on shutter okay. so yeah yeah so anyway so it's it's a good movie i think it's worth seeking out mm-hmm. um i guess if you can get past the whatever ridiculous premise of a transfusion <laughs> yeah i saw other people argued that the the beginning of the movie is kind of dull and plodding and i don't know if i disagree with that necessarily like and I, i'm not like it's not something i'm 100 like yeah they're right but um i mean it kind of reminds me in reverse because the movie i'm going to reference came out much later but reminds me of kind of like boys don't cry in the beginning mm-hmm. like the or like jack and diane or something like the small town kid who just like longs for something better and right is sort of like living in like this dirt road hickville and mm-hmm gets enraptured with this beautiful mysterious woman i like i don't know i i well, when, when i was drinking last night i made the my comment about the pacing was that i felt like that there were big scenes in this movie like my 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 biggest complaint about this movie probably is that i thought it was uneven in terms of pacing whereas i thought there was these big sequences like the bar the hotel or the right. motel like you know the the showdown at the end the transfusion like and the and the gaps in between felt not very important or kind of pointless to me. I mean, I think it's... At times. I think it's supposed to make it feel like you feel the transient nature of these. Yeah. Know, that they're just kind of like... They really are like drifters in the truest sense of the word where they're just right. going like from place to place to do these sure. terrible things. Yeah, I, I want to say, like, I got back... Because I, I like this movie. I, I really do. Um, I liked it much better when I saw it in 03 when you first told me about it. Uh-huh. 
and um because i think that was based off of buffy you told me about it and um i liked it a little less this time like the estimation went down just a little bit for me i didn't enjoy it as much the second time but i do think i didn't get more into it until about 30 minutes into it yeah and then it was pretty much all right because i think you had those bigger set pieces but i think maybe as a first time director she the 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 interstitial material between those sets pieces she's really good with the set pieces because it's one location kind right. of almost and she can like work with that but i think that interstitial like you know um nature of like some of those smaller scenes uh just didn't feel like they had a lot of impact or yeah, were that that's interesting. interesting i mean i think a lot of it to me is <sighs> up until they come in like after he gets the transfusion and attack him in his house up until that point like, I think it's more trying to get you invested in him making the choice. Sure. Like, whether he can do sure. it or not. Yeah. And maybe it falls flat. Maybe it's yeah. just Adrian Pastar's fault. Could be. That those scenes fall flat a little bit. Because be. I really think he's, like, the weakest. Oh, yeah. He's, like, a fucking blank in the entire in this, movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, like, I like visually, I think it's, like, got some pretty stunning stuff in it. Especially um, Severin's death is, like, mm-hmm. pretty visually mm-hmm. compelling. and Yeah. I remember there was, um, fuck, Sight and Sound, I guess was the name of the magazine, did yeah, a Sight and Sound, uh-huh. did um, a horror issue, and their big, like, splash page of it was uh, Paxton with, like, that, where half of his face is kind of, like, blown off, mm-hmm. just, like, covered in, like, oil, because right. he's, like, ripped out the crankcase or whatever, and I remember, like, seeing that at, fucking, like, 16 years old, and just being like, oh my god, this is, like, the greatest looking movie right. ever. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I love it so much because, like, yeah. I kind of mythologized it before I'd even seen it. Yeah, I still post stuff every once in a while on the Facebook page from Sight and Sound. I think it was Sight and Sound. Cause, yeah. You know, that was also the first place that I saw um, images from uh, uh, Cannibal Holocaust. Mm. Um, the woman, like, impaled, like, through her vagina up through her mouth sure. on, like, the oh, spike. Yeah. Right. Like, I, they had an image of that and I was like, oh, my God, like, I have to see this movie. Right. Now, like, I don't know that I ever want to watch that movie again, but... Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I have no desire to watch it again, but I um, I know I've made defenses of that movie before. One of my first internet screen names was You Lindsay mm-hmm. because of Cannibal Holocaust. Right, yeah. And one of my first, <laughs> like, pseudonyms was Clarence Worley because mm. I was so in love with uh, right. True Romance. Yeah. And now I don't know that I can really go back to either of those. Right, Although uh, we did just revisit True Romance like last year or so. Yeah, it was one of your top five favorite movies of the 90s. That's going to be one of those episodes one day where we have to go back and I make you look and figure out all of like your worst mistakes. Yeah, that's... Like that's, in hindsight. That's one of them. Yeah. Um, God, I'd put like Feeling Minnesota on that list over... No, that's, <laughs> that's not... No, that's not... That's not true and that's, that's a terrible true, joke. Like that's, <laughs> because I... Look, regardless of anything in True Romance... It has like one of the most brilliant ten minute sequences. Oh right, well with Hopper and Walken that you can imagine. Yeah, that's so, amazing. Right, there's some other really good stuff in it. Oh, too. absolutely, there are. But it's like that that scene is one of the. Uh, it's the it's, Drexel shit is really good. Yeah, I I've kind of not I, really good, but like yeah. it's still. I've kind of uh, moved away from that over time. Like just that whole thing. Like, yeah. But um, but the but the Hopper Walken scene is something you can watch. It's like a master class in. Uh, like just motivation of character and acting and score behind it. Like it's, it's so well done like that whole sequence, but 
Uh, so yeah, I think that uh, I think Near Dark's really good, and like you said, like I think more importantly, it's definitely influenced vampire movies to this day. I in a lot of ways, like vampire, I, yeah, just vampire mythos in yeah, general. Absolutely, uh, I think it's really important for for that. There's okay. um, I actually just looked it up. I hadn't looked it up before. The only two movies that I feel like we're marginally close to making this list that I kind of feel bad that aren't on it. Mm. Evil Dead 2 came out this year, which I think like would be, we'd be remiss to not mention that it's not on here. I just feel like it's so close to Evil Dead 1 that like, I don't want to like talk about the same things again. Um, And then Monster Squad and Opera by Argento. Mm-hmm. And I left Opera off like for your benefit, basically, because <laughs> I really like Opera, but I don't know that you would want to watch it. Yeah. Um, And Monster Squad, because I think it's just too much comedy. More, right. far more comedy right. than horror. Yeah, Although, I enjoyed Monster Cry when I was a kid, but um, Wolfman's got Nards is right, still like yeah. one of my favorite lines of sure. of all time. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with you on that e- Evil Dead thing. I, I I think I think it would have been really interesting to like look at both of those in this, but um, you know what it is is that I've seen those movies so many yeah, times, right, yeah, that I just really like. I love them, but I find it really tiresome to revisit them. Yeah. Necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I can get that. Okay. Um, so that's our episode for the week. Uh, I just want to let everybody know that, uh, so next week we'll be taking off. We've done four weeks in a row now. Um, we'll be taking next weekend off cause, uh, I have to start teaching and Frank has to move. So, um, that's what we'll be kind of like dealing with over the next week. We will be back, uh, I guess, because it falls on the uh, the month change falls on the weekend. What was the date again, Frank? Do you remember? Like the weekend of the 7th? Is that right? Yes. Yes. So the weekend of the 7th, we'll be back with the top five uh, modern crime movies. And then we will be covering 1988 B-horror movies. And then at the end of September, uh, as we move into October, which was which we did last year, uh, where we're going to make the whole month about horror movies at the very end of September. Frank and I are going to go through everything that's on Netflix and Prime in terms of the in the car category. And Frank is going to go ahead and give recommendations for things that you can watch if you subscribe to those services at the very end of September. And then as we move into October, we will be covering, I know already, the top five psychological horror movies. Mm, uh, I forgot about that list. We are going to uh, be doing a first watch for the first time in a long time with our friend Mike Bledsoe, who's got, who has uh, somehow not seen Halloween. So um, just like the Goonies episode that we did with him, um, he's going to watch Halloween with us for the first time in his life. And um, that should be fun. And it'll be really interesting, actually, because it's like... Because he has to know certain things about Halloween already. Right. You can't, like, live or... Well, only because there's so much derivative of Halloween. Sure. That, like, it'll sure. maybe even feel, like, antiquated or... Maybe, right. Like, he'll feel like it's, like, ripping off something else. Sure. It's sure. the opposite. It's going to be really interesting, yeah. I think, to see what the reaction is to that. I'm excited to watch Halloween again, so... Right. And then um, at the end of that month, we will be finishing off the B-Horror movie list um, with um, the year 1989. Let me say this. Like, I've enjoyed doing this experiment over this year. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to being past, like, the B-Horror movie list. <laughs> yeah. I really am. Yeah. I'm going to mark that for edit. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it, it has been exhausting. I, I I will give you that. Like, even I though like, like I think all five of these movies are really good, and it's two two years in a row now that yeah. I thought like I've liked all the movies. It's been really exhausting. Like somehow throwing myself back into that time period. Right. I also feel like I, I like it when we do things that have variety to them. So even like the psychological horror, I think, is a more interesting experiment than just mm-hmm. like the only thing that links these movies together is the fact that they came out, you know, in the same year. The same year. Right. Yeah. And that they happen to be like non-studio produced, like low budget horror. Right. Yeah. It doesn't make the... Although, I mean, I, I, I do think your movies have a lot of variety a lot of times on these lists. Um a couple of the early years in the 80s did not like there's a lot just slasher yeah like that was really derivative type stuff so but um but no I, th- I think and especially as we've gotten like from 84 on like i think that's really become a lot more varied in terms of the different types of horror movies that been the next two place. years have a lot of really fun movies in them too yeah so so Okay, so um, remember, uh, if you could like or share on Facebook, either of those things help us out. The other thing that helps us out is whatever podcatcher app you're using, uh, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, anything like that. Um, go ahead and uh, please like rate us, you know, leave comments. All those things help us in terms of getting more uh, listeners overall. And um, anybody that has done that, again, thank you. We appreciate it. We thank you for listening to us, um, especially when Frank's done with all the B-Horror movie stuff at the end of the <laughs> one of the B-Horror movie podcasts. Um, but uh, if you want to contact us, uh, we pretty much have the rest of the year planned out overall. But um, we really would love people to like give us ideas for lists so Frank can go ahead and like create like a top five based off of like, you know, what you want to hear about. So please like you can contact us on Facebook um, and uh, or you can email us at two guys, five movies at uh, gmail.com. That's number two and five. Uh, if you have any ideas for the new year uh, when we're coming up, then that's not going to be that long really when it comes down to it. We only have a few months left. So uh, thank you again, everybody, and have a great night. Have a good night.